Welcome to Real Herbalism Radio, show 238, recorded at Big Dog Studios in Eugene, Oregon. Today's show is made possible by... One of the benefits of the Herbal Nerd Society is getting custom content written for you every month. Another thing that you get as an Herbal Nerd Society member is the ability to say what you want to hear in our herbal conferences and those herbal articles. You also get an ad-free viewing environment for the Practical Herbalist. Join today at theherbalnerdsociety.com. A decade or so ago, we saw a big push in the herb world toward wild-crafted herbs because they make better, stronger medicine. That push endangered many wild areas and plant populations, and it underscored the importance of looking to Mother Nature to school us in growing medicine. Today we're talking with Tony DiMaggio, owner and operator of Sacred Blossom Polyculture Herb Farm, about polyculture farming for stronger plants and plant medicine. That's a mouthful. So here are your hosts. Candace Hunter. I'm Candace Hunter. <laughs> and I'm Patrick Hunter. And welcome, welcome to, to Real, Real Herbalism, Herbalism Radio. Radio. <laughs> if I deviate one scotch from you, you are just <laughs> lost. <laughs> Tony, welcome back. Thank you. I hope it has been an absolutely fabulous growing season for you. It has. It has. And one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about, now that things are hopefully slowing down a little bit, starting to cool off, is after you wrap it up and you start, because now is the time to start thinking already, I'm guessing, about next year, right? Always a year or two or three or five ahead, yep. Right? So... What are we thinking about for polycultural farm? What does it mean to be a polycultural farmer? Honestly, what does that mean? Um, so when I was working on a very large herb farm, industrial scale herb farm in Oregon, I had a flash of um, all these studies have been done on echinacea. Mm-hmm. Some of them saying that echinacea is useless and others saying that echinacea is amazing. And I was out hoeing in a four-acre patch of echinacea. Oh, wow. Where there wasn't hardly a living plant besides echinacea for hundreds of feet in any direction. Wow. And that combined with a mentor I had at the time really made me realize, like, maybe the problem isn't with the studies. Maybe the problem's with the quality of the plants people were using. Yeah. Um, the high quality echinacea is in the ground four years, say three, four years. Oh yeah. And um, something like fifty to eighty percent of a plant's energy goes to feeding the soil. I talked about in our last interview. And I say all the time, um, if plants are surround, uh, people think the soil comes from plants decomposing, but that's just a small fraction of it. The plant injects energy into the soil, takes carbohydrates, carbon from the air, injects carbohydrates into the soil to uh, feed the soil microbes, which in turn feed the plants. And if there's a monoculture above ground, that's equivalent to a human only needing lettuce. Right. Um, You need that biodiversity above ground to have the biodiversity below ground, which can release a broad range of nutrients to make for a healthy soil. Um. So in an echinacea field that's there for four years with nothing going into the ground except what the echinacea, just one species of plant, which doesn't grow in monocultures naturally, of course, um, is probably not the same. So here I have all my different species of plants all mixed together. So the roots from the echinacea 
are interacting with the roots from grasses, from mints, from a wide variety of plants, a lot of different families of plants. And just like our forests are the most um, productive ecosystems here, our prairies are the most productive ecosystems. They're all polycultures where things are working together. And our fields only survive through a continual influx of fertilizers and nutrients. So by growing plants and polycultures, it's mimicking the natural systems that create a healthy world to begin with. Right. So like the the prairies, which is essentially the area, the natural uh, culture that that area that you're living in would be anyway, there it's not just a giant field of grass. That's not what a prairie right. really is. Not even close. How yeah. many species, if you were, if you could go back in time a few hundred years to a point where humans weren't farming in the Midwest area, if you looked at just a like a 10 foot by 10 foot patch, how many species roughly do you think you'd find of plants in that 10 foot by 10 foot plant? patch that's an excellent question um i can tell you a story i I know who would know the answer i have a friend who her career was as a prairie botanist oh and she took me out looking for endangered plants she's retired now but as a hobby she goes out looking for these endangered plants and we went out looking for something called little bugleweed okay and we had to go to the side of a hill somewhere that's so steep and so out of the way that it's like one of the only corners that never got plowed. And this little bugle weed is three inches tall. Oh God. And we're looking for it through knee high grass. <laughs> and it's almost entirely eradicated because once you plow that ground up, it's never coming back. Oh gosh. Yeah. So I'm sure there are countless species that are gone that people they don't even know about. Yeah. People talk about ecosystem loss and how many species we're losing. Think about that on a soil microbiology level, where things have evolved in these niches for tens of thousands of years, and then you rip it up a few times and put some chemicals on it that those micro, the microbiome of that field was unique to that space, and it developed by itself for eons, and now all that's gone. Yeah. We've ripped up 99.9-something percent of the native grassland prairies in the Midwest. Yes. It drives me nuts when people talk about, oh, they're destroying the Amazon. They're destroying the rainforest. It's like, do we really have the right to talk? The Midwest (laughs) can uh, absorb tons of carbon. We went and destroyed that 100 years ago. Yes. 150 years ago. Yeah, and throughout all of North America, everywhere. I mean, everywhere we've done the same thing in, in different in different ways, but we've done the same thing. Well, Even here in Oregon, it's not natural to have a forest that's just Douglas fir and nothing else with maybe some ground cover, but not much else besides that. That's not normal. Douglas no, fir is usually with other trees. Right. Well, and your ecosystem there is uh, like oak savanna. Yeah. And that's, I lived in Oregon. I love Oregon. I've been all over the world a couple of times. And my very favorite place is Douglas County, Oregon. Oh, it's gorgeous. Um, But one reason I left is because that place is going to be on fire until it's all burnt down. Yeah. It's just not how that part of the world is supposed to be. Yeah. It hasn't. Trees shoulder to shoulder. 
in a totally prior fire prone area. Doesn't make sense. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't. But humans don't make a lot of sense. We've done a lot of crazy <laughs> things. This last hundred years has been nuts. <laughs> yep. Yep. So anyway, um, when I was out in Oregon, uh, I was there for two years. And one year I was working on one of the large uh, standard organic herb farms down there and working 40, 50 hours a week there. It was me and 12 undocumented Mexican guys. Anyway, <laughs> I been working, you know, 50 hours a week. I'd volunteer on an herb farm, uh, Veritas Wild Gardens, where um, they, they got me into the polyculture system and really taught me about that. And they're very small scale. They're producing, you know, 100, 200 pounds, I'm not sure exactly, of fresh plant material a year. Um, it's all sold to medical practitioners, um, but the absolute highest quality. And what I do on my place, and it's very wild when they say wild gardens. Like you've got to really go around and spend some time to get a pound. Um, What I'm doing is kind of a hybrid in between that and uh, more conventional farming. And that I usually, I generally have single rows of things. So one row of this, one row of that, one row of another on 15 inch spacing. So everything's intermingled with other things. And then every field goes fallow every other year. Well, excuse me, you know, a lot of these herbs are in the ground for three years. But then everything, when it gets cover crop, goes with a, um, a many species cover crop mix for a nice. year or two years. Nice. So the soil can reinvent itself, as it were, exactly. re- replenish. And with my herb fields, uh, most of the stuff I grow are you know, short-lived perennials. Um, I'm sure I don't need to tell your audience, but I I can anyway, lemon balms and mints and echinaceas and hyssop and anise hyssop and, you know, that whole lot of mint family plants. Um, And I take quite good care of them early on. I water them, keep them moist to get them started. Uh, but once they're in there and once they're healthy, weed them pretty well for the first year up until August. And then uh, then they're mostly on their own. I might get in there and hand weed a touch, but um, I let the, the weeds come in. What happens to me in some spots is uh, nettles will start to take over. Mm. Well, nettles is one of my most important crops, so I don't fight that. Right. <laughs> no, it, was, it was a mint field. Now it's a nettle field. Like, great. Okay. And, and it's all no-till in between. Nice. Yeah. It sounds like that also makes for a lot less intensity of work, too. I mean, the plants are going to take care of themselves. Do you really need to do much? You know, let them do their thing. Yes and no. I mean, I cu- yeah, I hear you. Yeah. The way I figure is every inch of land that gets planted needs to get tended about five times with cultivating, with weeding. Um, And I don't wait till the weeds are up. You know, I get the weeds when you just barely see the first ones. Um, And so covering every square inch of a couple acres is, uh, is a lot of work and I'm not hardly mechanized. I do it all basically by hand. Um, No tractors in the field after the soil is prepped. Um, 
because <clears throat> I don't want to have these walkways and these big tire tracks and these big spaces for big equipment that goes in a few times a year. Um, I'd rather do things by hand and have a totally natural, natural setting. Um, it seems so, like the walkways too would provide space for some of the more noxious or challenging weeds that aren't right. helpful. So why do you want to give them space? You have to control every inch of ground, whether it's a walkway or it's useful. So if someone is, let's say, a suburbanite or a city person, urban dweller, and they wanted to try doing a little bit more polyculture in their beds or the little garden they have, what what is your advice to someone like that? Well, they're already off to a great start. You know, when you just have two or three or ten plants of something, just by default, it's in a small enough area that it's surrounded by other plants. Yeah. You know, it's an natural system. Um but a few tips specifically for them. I mow my grass as inoften as is practical. Um, where do you think all the bugs live? All the beneficial in- insects, they're in that long grass. Okay. Um, it doesn't necessarily, the healthiest place is generally the least tended place. Um, some weeds are okay. How I manage weeds lots of times is uh, it's really to efficiently, and the house gardener doesn't need to do everything you know with maximum efficiency but to be maximum efficient on uh, any scale it's really important to know your enemy know every one of the weeds know its life cycle and with a lot of my annual weeds which are going to be the main thing that come up when you you know work a new piece of land and get it ready for the year is if you kill the annual weed when it's putting on its flowers, when it's already flowered and it's pollinating, but before it has viable seed, that will kill the plant. It won't have viable seed and it won't come back. If you mow down a plant too early, it'll just start growing again. That's brilliant. So come up, and then when they're flowering and they're in the later stage, but before they have viable seed, then you can cut them and use them as mulch. More often than not, these things we think of as weeds are the most mineral-dense plants we have. And they make the best mulch. And it also cuts down the amount of work you need to do, too. And then also, if you have these big weeds growing next to your your desirable plants, you rip up that weed and that big chunk of soil that comes with it, you're destroying the root zone of your desirable plants. But if you cut it and kill it, then you're leaving that all intact and then um, setting the plants on the surface. So growing your mulch in place, essentially. Yeah, I I like that. I like that a lot um, because I think composting, when we look at for city and suburban people, we put so much into the landfills and that's bad. And if you want to, if you want to take it to like your local garden center, some of the, we have forest products places and garden centers throughout, you know, throughout America, we have them where you can dump your weeds, which is great. They'll turn it into compost and then they'll sell your weeds back to you. So you pay them to take your weeds and then you pay them to, Bring, give them back to you in a different form. The idea of composting at home makes sense, but a lot of people that I know, myself included, have been really finding ourselves challenged with how do you do this so that you don't end up with a bunch of weeds that you've just spread across your yard, which yeah. I admit to having done, and now I've got a really bad problem with bindweed in this one area. Yeah, <laughs> so. there are a couple of weeds that um, I pick on site. Mm-hmm. I see them. 
and I stop what I'm doing and pick them. And bindweed is one of them. Yeah. Especially when you're growing herbs, it'll wrap all around your plants. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to me to sell what I'm saying I'm selling. And if it's, you know, 10% bindweed. That's not okay. (laughs) And it goes to seed so early and the way it crawls through things. Once it gets going, you can't figure out where the base of it is. Ah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And then perennial weeds is uh, another issue, you know, um, and how do you deal with perennial weeds? Ooh, there's a lot of books on that. Yeah. <laughs> I know them, but there's a lot to it. But know your enemy. If you want to grow right. without with doing the least amount of weeding, you have to know the weeds. It helps a lot. I love that. Yeah. Is there a good resource that someone would be able to look at to find out <clears throat> how to learn that enemy? You know, a, a, I don't know. There are plenty of books out there. I have a reference guide. Um weeds of the upper Midwest. I'm sure they have that for everywhere. Um, but now, you know, probably the best thing is they've got the Google lens on everybody's phone. Oh yeah. Um, if you're not sure what the weed is, uh, you can take a picture and, and study up on its life cycle. Uh, but the big thing you need to understand is its life cycle. Okay. Um, and it's, it's, you know, if you understand a couple of principles, then you can really take care of things pretty easily. You don't need to know everything about every plant. Just a couple of principles and the basics of its life cycle. So when people are going out and looking for purchasing some herbs or some good teas and that sort of thing, and they know that they want to get something that's polycultured, but not everybody will even say if they do that. Not everybody lives in your area and can just say, oh, well, we're looking for Tony's tea because, you know, we know that's good. What, what is some of the, the visual or the, the experiential quality differences that you've noticed between the plants that have been polycultured versus those that have been monocultured, even if they were monocultured in a really good environment? What are some of what the types of differences you've noticed? Um, is quality and vitality. Um, so I don't know of any farm. I mean, I'm tiny, right? I do. Yeah. 22, 2,500 pounds of herbs a year. Um, but that's still, you know, it's a few acres. It's, uh, it's something. Um, I don't know of any polyculture herb farms anywhere close to my scale. I know of a lot of like very small people yeah. um, that produce really exceptional quality herbs. But as far as like major producers, um, it kind of just goes in the face of large scale farming. Yeah. You know, everybody's going there with big mowing equipment, cutting down, you know, a six foot wide swath. Like it doesn't, yeah. you know, and an acre is, uh, doesn't, doesn't really lend itself to polyculture. Um, no. So these small producers, and I know there's a lot of really phenomenal small scale herb producers in Oregon. Um, the upper, the Northeast coast has a lot of really great small scale herb producers as well. Um, I'm sure other parts of the country, but uh I don't, I don't know too many off the top of my head. Um, and then, you know, what really makes me proud when you talk about quality is when I give my herbs to people that really know, mm-hmm. you know, to, to top herb experts and hear what they have to say about it. Um, that's one, it's one thing for me to think it's going good, but when people who really know, um, and haven't heard all my baloney about how and why I do things, um, but they just try the herbs and, and they're really impressed with them. Then I know we're on the right track. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people are 
you know, most of us, those of us who aren't the the super experts, you know, that that haven't devoted decades at this point in our lives to learning and working with plants and herbs. One of the things that I noticed just looking at your tea is that the colors are really vibrant. The pieces are large. They're not small. They're, and that the, um, you can identify the plant just even looking at it because what you're doing is allowing the plant to hold its shape and giving it a strong enough cellular um, underlayment, I guess you could say, or cellular structure that allows it to keep its shape even after it's been you know, processed even after you've, you know, it's in the cup. Have you been really frustrated with Google searches lately? You want to get your page up high in the rankings. And it seems like every time you do a search on your topic, you end up way down at the bottom, several pages in. Oh, and the companies at the top are the really, really big ones. You want to contact Mudpod Design House. They are really good at helping with SEO. They'll help you get the right keywords and get your page rankings up. Go to Mudpod Design House at mudpoddesign.com to get your SEO right. And it's just like vegetables. You know, the the most nutrient-dense vegetables will hold on to their quality longer than poor-quality vegetables. Yeah. And it's the same thing with herbs. The really high-quality herbs will maintain their compounds longer than the low-quality herbs. Um. I was also going to say on these big herb farms, they come through, like I say, with a six foot wide mower and just gobble everything up. I'll go through, I'll start harvesting a field every time before I start harvesting, I'll smell what I'm working with, taste it, sense it. Is this really at peak, peak quality? Um, And all the time, especially with a few herbs, lemon balm, anise hyssop, kind of some of the slightly more uh, faint uh, aromatics. Mm-hmm. I'll go out there and smell them. And all the time, I'll like have the bins and the knives and everything loaded up and be ready to go. And I'll go out and I'll smell you. I guess we're just not ready today. Yeah. I can't tell you why, you know, the moon's where it should be. The weather's how it should be. The plant looks how it should be. Everything should be good, but I go out and smell it and it, it either is or it isn't. And that's really the, the final judgment I make is based on how I sense the plant that day. And you just can't do that on a big scale. Even if you've got a handful of people working with you, you know, you got to kind of keep the works moving. It doesn't work out right. And on some occasions I've even gone through and harvested half the field. And for whatever reason, this side of the field was good and that side of the field wasn't. And unless you're really paying attention and doing things on this artisanal scale, you'll, you'll never notice these things. Right. And you I think got a pretty good worker working for you. It doesn't get noticed. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of why at least, you know, out here in Oregon and through California, they pay the really, really big bucks to the vintners that know their grapes and they will go yeah. out every, they'll go out multiple times in a day. Is it ready right now? No. Okay. I'll try this afternoon after it's had some sun. See, no, try again tomorrow. And they, they keep trying and tasting and testing until the moment comes. And that's what makes the really great wine. And if that's what makes the really great wine, why would that not also make the really great herbal tea, the really great medicine? Absolutely. Yeah, they say that the best fertilizer is the farmer's footprint. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) And, you know, my very favorite thing to do in the whole world is walk around and look at my plants and look how things are coming along. And I will be out in every field just about every day. 
That if sounds... I have company comes over, like that's what we do. You go for a walk through the fields. Like if if I'm looking, want to take a break, I'll take a walk through the fields. I mean, I'm out there sometimes several times a day. I love it. You know, it. you say that and it really, it brought up this memory. I remember being a child. I was probably, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 years old. And we were following along behind one of my great uncles, my mom, my dad, my grandmother, grandfather, my sister. I don't remember. I think she was kind of like screwing around doing something, but they were walking along through the garden, pointing out each one of their plants and what it was. And, oh, look at the pansies. And and it for me, that made an impression that was important. But as you talk about how the farmer, you, you go through and you look at the field and you're looking at each of the plants every day, like you're greeting an old friend. Mm-hmm. It made me think, you know, my my family was reaching back into those ancestral connections to the earth and to the plant life just like you're doing. Yep. And to me, it seems like polyculture is the way to do that. You don't want to have, I don't, I don't, I mean, I love Patrick, but I don't want to have 50 Patricks to live with. One is plenty. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I want to have a Patrick and I want to have, you know, all the various family and friends. Yep, exactly. We all come together to make life much more colorful and, and rich. For us humans, diversity is the spice of life. Yes. And for things whose roots are in the ground and they're not moving very far, diversity is really the spice of life for them too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I imagine that it also, having that diversity makes it much easier for the whole population to resist pests like aphids or, you know. I, um, with the exception of potato beetle on my ashwagandha, I don't have any pest issues. Oh. Um, nor do I ever expect to because of how I grow things. Um, and it's, it's such a living system. And though the areas around the farm and around the fields are a whole nother ecological systems teeming with life. Um, and then how I control the potato beetle on Nashwaganda is really beautiful. It's not that the, it's just a, a life cycle issue. The ladybugs in my area are the main control for the potato beetle. Okay. Um, But the ladybug life cycle is slower to get going. They're like two two life cycles behind the potato beetle. Okay. Um, And there's just a lot of organic potato growers in my area. So I'm like, Uh, potato beetles around, nothing I knew about it. Um, so what I do is I plant potatoes at the head center and end of my ashwagandha field. First of all, I grow my ashwagandha uh, on every three feet. I put a plant and they're in the middle of my direct seeded California poppy rose. Oh, nice. So they're both, they, they fit together nicely in terms of they're very drought tolerant plants. Uh, they get very little attention and they both get dug up at the end of the year. I grow them both as annuals. Okay. Um, pretty much the only annuals I grow. Um, and then there's potatoes scattered throughout the field in places where I go through. And I literally, just like a lot of the Amish guys do around here, I crush the potato beetles and their larvae early yeah. in the season. Um, but it doesn't take that long, like a month, a month and a half of doing that, that there's no more potato bugs because then you'll turn over the bottom of the leaves instead of seeing the potato beetle eggs, you'll see ladybug eggs. Nice. So um, it just takes a little bit of time for the predators. 
to get caught up and I'll see potato bugs around, but not in any quantity that, that causes any economic harm. Right. You know, even within our own bodies, it's, you know, our microbiome is, it's all about maintaining balance. You need a little candida, just not too much. A few potato bugs are probably not a huge problem. They provide food for the ladybugs, which are really valuable. Exactly. So another thing I'm going to do a little different this coming year is, um, I'm going to plant potatoes earlier to get the cycle of the potato beagle started earlier, which is kind of counterintuitive, but I'm pretty sure it's going to work. And you're talking about microbiology, and that's really where all this polyculture comes back to, is, is the biology in the soil, the microbiology in the soil. We're just as uh, uh, science, like scratching the surface yeah. of soil biology. Um, we've learned more in the last 10 years than we knew in all human history before that. Mm-hmm. And we're learning so much more every six months. Um, one of my heroes is Dr. Elaine Ingham. And before her, everyone just understood soil biology. They'd look at it through, um, they'd take cultures of what's in the soil. And their way for taking cultures is the same way they take cultures for human pathogens. Mm-hmm. 98 degrees, moist human environment. Well, what soil biology is going to live in that? Right. You know, that's what, <laughs> so some things will, but that's what we understood about soil biology. Dr. Lane Ingham, um, who's no spring chicken anymore, she's been at this a long while. She was the first person to start looking at soil through a magnifying glass. Oh, wow. And opened up a whole new world. So most of the soil biology doesn't even have names, right? So <laughs> right. to really pretend like we know what we're talking about is um, we don't. No. So what, what does nature do? They just have this large, large amount of plants above ground feeding a large array of nutrients to the, below the ground, feeding a wide variety of microbiolo- microbiology. And that's what I'm trying to do, just have a wide variety of plants above ground that is really for the biology below ground because that's what I want diverse because every type of microbe is able to unlock different things for the plant. That is absolutely beautiful. It is like giving Mother Earth a deep tissue massage. Nice. <laughs> nice. And a well-balanced diet. Yes. I love it. So you're looking at me like what? Do you have any questions? No, I, I, it's been interesting it's, and fun to learn. And I do have things like, you know, are all the herbs just kind of mixed together? But then he answered that with, you know, he has, you know, poppy mm-hmm. rose and he has some, you know, planted there. Um, so it's been really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was thinking about, um, you know, the whole idea of uh, with a farm, the the weather. And I was thinking Midwest mm-hmm. weather. I was thinking, you know, uh, unpredictable frosts. I was thinking hailstorms. I was thinking mm-hmm. tornadoes. I was thinking, you know, how has that ever been a problem for you, or is it been a plus? So um, I specifically chose a farm with poor sandy soil, um, which offers some advantages and disadvantages. But generally, the herbs. Herbs like uh, not too rich of a soil. Yeah. And it's easier to add a little something to take something away. And then uh, a few years ago, we had nine inches of rain overnight. Yeah. We couldn't get more than a mile away from the farm in any direction without bridge being 
underwater. Yeah. Right. Um, a lot of nine inches in 12 hours is like, is an ordeal. Yeah. I had almost no runoff on the farm because of such sandy soil just kind of soaked right through. Um, <laughs> and then also last year we had a real wet late spring. Um, a lot of people had trouble getting into the ground. Fortunately, I have that real sandy soil, which heats up quicker. It drains quicker. So, um, so that's been a blessing for me. I worked on a farm uh, for six years here in Natura Farms. Uh, three years ago, they had egg to baseball sized hail coming in at mm. 70 miles an hour. Mm. Uh, Ouch. Caused tens of thousands of dollars of damage to buildings and greenhouses, mm-hmm. destroyed crops. Oh, yeah. Uh, destroyed basically everything. Um, destroyed elderberries. That's tough. Oh, that's hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> destroyed black currants. That's tough. Um, fortunately, I haven't had anything like that. Um, the herbs are some of the best things to survive those conditions, though. Uh, yeah. They'll still get beat up. Um, but And then I don't know about here, but I know, again, Natura Farms, which is about two hours from here, historically over the last hundred years, they've had a frost every single month of the year except August. You know, so oh. I mean, really, like, how do you how do you grow ashwagandha like that? Oh um, gosh! <laughs> uh, one thing I do that makes life much easier for me is I I have a I have a thousand square feet of drying space, which is wow. way overbuilt, That's and I did that intentionally because I know the herbs aren't ideal every day. Most herb farms have to flip the herb dryer every single day. Yeah, um, but I know herbs aren't ready every single day. Yeah. You know, they come in batches with the moon and the weather and with whatever. Um, so lots of times dryers empty, um, just waiting for things to be ready. So by having that large herb dryer, I can wait till things are at ideal conditions before I harvest. Right. I, I started off on one tangent. I got onto another and I forgot where I started. No, it, it was okay because it, it opened up a whole, uh, not only uh, experiencing what weather throws at you, um, why you chose the farm you did, and also how you do your production, knowing all those factors that go into it and whether the herbs are ready or not. So that was even a little bit more detail about that polyculture idea, polyfarming mm-hmm. idea. Before we end here, I do have to ask you, because you've mentioned the moon a couple of times. And although I actually do know sort of what you're talking about, I am sure there are many people that are listening that are thinking, why does the moon matter? It doesn't bring sunshine to the plants. Can you? So if you would have asked me about this four years ago, I would say the moon's got nothing to do with nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not the moon man. Um, and historically, you know, before the weather man, I totally understand how the moon does affect weather cycles, how yeah. it affects. I lived on the ocean most of my life. And you see the tides yes. with the rising tide, the high, high tides versus the low, high tides. Yeah. Um, and the same thing happens with the moisture in the soil. You know, sometimes the moisture, the full moon brings the moisture higher up in the soil. And when the moisture moves in the soil, it's moving nutrients by the roots. Um, and when you have the high, high tide, more moisture, more nutrients are moving by the roots. Um, you just literally then, just blew my mind right there. I'm trying yeah. to, I'm trying to just comprehend that. <laughs> you basically said there's a tide in your field. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole earth is made out of water, right? right. Yeah. And though the, wa- the moon moves water around in the ocean, it does the same thing on land. I'm, yeah, I'm, still, I'm geeking out a little bit here. I think I'm that still is just... on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anyway, to go back to the whole moon <clears throat> thing, um, a lot of my mentors who have a lot more experience and are a lot wiser than I am swear by the moon. Mm-hmm. I always was kind of thinking more like it's poppycock, but <laughs> more often than not, I'll go out to my fields and. When is it the right, I I always determine the right time to harvest by smelling the plant, by feeling the plant and sensing the plant. Like nothing trumps that, but it almost always coincides with the moon. So now as I have more experience and I've seen this more and more, I'll go, man, I don't know why this herb doesn't smell right, but the full moon's next week. So probably then. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So yeah, a lot of it, I don't really understand. And then um, one of my mentors, uh, Jane from Four Elements Farm, who's uh, probably the main, well, one of the main herb growers in this part of the country, uh, she gave me a calendar produced by her farm, which is a really great place uh, that has, you know, when you should do different things based on the moon cycle. And it talks about planting. I went by that this spring, largely, because I could. And I don't know, though. You know, it's like my plants this year, I didn't use grow lights, but uh, generally I put everything in plastic trays under grow lights in a sealed room. Does the moon have anything to do with it or not? I mean, it's not even touching the earth. Um, But I don't know. I wouldn't bet against it, although I don't understand um, enough people I admire and respect uh, say it does that uh, I'm not going to flippantly say it doesn't because i don't understand why well and you've got enough experiential evidence to say maybe they've got something there (laughs) just keep playing with this (laughs) you know like i say i don't know that much yet but give me another 30 40 years and i'll probably start to understand some things (laughs) all right well how can people get a hold of you I hope everyone checks out the website, sacredblossomfarm.com. I have really great farm tour videos on there. There's a 10-minute version, which is good um, for people that don't know that much. And then there's an hour-plus long version that for people that really want to delve into uh, the specifics and how of and why I grow herbs in the way I do. Um, you can see a lot of the farm. It's really beautiful videos, pretty, pretty well produced. And you can find my teas on there as well and learn a lot about what I'm doing. Thank you so very much for joining us. It has been yeah. enlightening, to say the least. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. Right. And I don't know if I mentioned it, but sacredblossomfarm.com. Yes, and the link will be in the show notes, too. All right. Okay. Well, as always, put, put an herb, herb on, on it. it. The statements made about herbs and products on this podcast have not been evaluated by the United States Food and Drug Administration, FDA, and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. All information provided on this podcast or any affiliated websites is for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for advice from your physician or other healthcare professional. You should not use the information on this podcast and its affiliated websites for a diagnosis or treatment of any health problem. Always consult with a healthcare professional before starting any new vitamins, supplements, diet, or exercise program before taking any medication or if you have or suspect you might have a health problem. Any testimonials, questions, or case studies are based on individual results and do not constitute a guarantee that you will achieve the same results.